Welcome to Beer Me. I'm your host, Sarah Jane. Every episode, I will have a guest on the show to discuss different parts of the beer world, from brewers, importers, educators. This will allow us to examine the dynamic world of beer through different lenses. Whether you're new to beer or a seasoned professional, we will have something for you. So I'm very excited today to welcome back to the show Jeff O'Neill. He is the founder, proprietor, everything for Industrial Arts Brewing Company in the Hudson Valley. Jeff and I did a show together um, almost a year ago at this point, um, and we took a deep dive into local malt production within the Hudson Valley and kind of going through what that looks like um, and how that can be used in brewing and, you know, kind of talking about how the brewing in the Hudson Valley has kind of shifted and and morphed over the years. Uh, Jeff brews really, really thoughtful, clean beers um, and definitely has a uh, really wonderful uh, establishment that's completely gorgeous um, in Beacon, New York, um, as well as uh, Garnerville. Um, so, Jeff, thank you so much for taking time to do uh, part two with Jeff O'Neill. Oh, it's it's my pleasure, SJ. It's uh, great to be back. And thank you so much for the overly kind words. So we like to do here on Beer Me Radio, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, why, it's how you keep us coming back, right? I know. <laughs> Flattery will get you everywhere. <laughs> yes, it will. Yes, it certainly will. Um, yeah. Yeah. So we, so last time we were talking about malt, we talked about, um, you know, the, the thoughtfulness behind, um, you know, water conservation within your brewery. Um, you know, today I want to build on that conversation a little bit. Um, I'd love to dive into processes or products that you are using um, to help with your carbon footprint in general. Um, oh, and then right. also happy to touch on, um, you know, any kind of fun, fun hop tidbits uh, or updates from the Hudson Valley. All right. Uh, where do you want to start? Let's start with, uh, you know, it's been, it's been a little over a year since we last chatted. Let's talk about if there's anything new and exciting for you as far as uh, sustainability efforts. Yeah, well, we were probably um, just a few months into fully running our new facility when we talked last. Mm -hmm. um, and we've leaned into a couple of uh, a couple of um, techniques uh, that we stumbled on in our first brewery uh, in a bigger way in the new facility. Um, and I love actually I love when I when I get to give a tour. Uh, I typically walk through the, you know, the shiny stainless steel and, and you know, all the sort of tools that we use. Um, and then on the backside of our warehouse are a couple of things that I think are, are really pretty clever um, that we do. And they were born out of uh, situational necessities in our, in our first facility. Okay. And I don't know. I don't um I don't have any any idea how many of your how many of your listeners may have been to either of our facilities, um, but our first one was built in a um, like a two hundred plus year old factory uh, textile mill complex uh, here in the Hudson Valley in Rockland County, uh, Garnerville, um, and 
we had to kind of cobble together several warehouses, open up walls and even create a pipeline between two of the buildings, uh, brew houses in a separate building from fermentation cellars. And there was not a lot of uh, outdoor space. There's virtually no, no green space left on the site. And mm-hmm. none of none of the roofs can uh, support, well, they might be able to, but we, we weren't able to figure out uh, an easy way to put our glycol chiller uh, outside. Um, and for those who are not familiar with the sort of process of a brewery, um, one of the byproducts of, of fermentation besides ethanol and carbon dioxide is, is heat. And you need to um, control the temperature of a fermenting beer. Mm-hmm. And you, you do that by uh, removing the heat from the fermenting tank and, and basically discharging, compressing it and discharging it into the atmosphere. So uh, when you have a, a, a bunch of tanks, um, they're in various states of fermentation. Some of them are sitting at, at room temperature for primary fermentation. Some of them are a little bit lower if you're making lagers, for instance. And then some of them are very close to freezing temperature. And you have sort of a, a range of different temperatures that you're maintaining. And you do that by by running a brine solution. Or, uh, typically, it's a food-grade um, um, glycol, like antifreeze sort of solution mm-hmm. that you pump you you chill with your refrigeration equipment and pump through the jackets in the tanks so you uh, remove that heat through um through the metal in the tank uh have, we'll have a liquid uh jacket surrounding the inside of surrounding the shell and you pump the cold liquid through a tank and a valve opens and closes to regulate the temperature does that make sense yep no, you've okay. explained it perfectly. Okay. So that liquid necessary that's recirculating necessarily warms up as it takes heat away from, from the tank. And it goes back to the back to the chiller um, in a big pipe. There's a supply and return, and it returns to the chiller and gets re uh, refrigerated again or cooled down again. Um, and it dumps, it compresses that heat down and discharges it into the air. So we couldn't put that that piece of equipment outdoors in a, in our original facility. So we had to put it in a like a utility room, and that creates heat inside. So we had to put a big uh, exhaust fan in the wall to send that heat outside to keep from you know cooking ourselves in the summer. Mm-hmm. And we we opened in the summer, um, so we didn't really have an idea of of what that would mean once the weather turned cold. But it's enough, I'm pleased to report that it was enough heat that we were able to turn our our heaters off um, and keep the the fan off during the winter. And especially as we scaled up, we had more and more, um, more and more more and more cooling demand and thusly more heat to discharge. So we, we were able to heat a large part of our of our uh, fermentation space and our cellar utility room during the winter just with just with the the surplus heat from our process oh wow yeah which was like a lucky kind of a lucky break um 
And at the same time, and right next right alongside this piece of equipment, uh, we purchased a nitrogen generator from um, actually it was like New Belgium Brewing Company's like annual kind of like garage sale where they yeah. have they have like surplus um, equipment, hoses and pumps and stuff that they've outgrown or or were just part of R and D projects that that they don't need anymore. And we had a connection at the time through a friend who's actually on our team now, but worked at New Belgium then, um, to their uh, equipment supply manager. And we bought a, a, a nitrogen generator that was, I think it must have been too small for them to do what they wanted to, to do with it. And we got a great deal on it. <clears throat> they shipped it to us and it cost us, you know, probably more to install it than to buy it even. But it uh, it functionally works by taking compressed air from our um, from our air compressor, uh, which is a common piece of equipment in virtually every brewery. You need air to open valves and push things around and empty kegs and all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So we tied this piece of equipment to our air compressor there, and we get very very pure nitrogen um, just through like a. Uh, activated carbon filtering out the oxygen in compressed air. So from the beginning, um, we had this supply of, of really clean and pure nitrogen that we use to offset uh, our carbon dioxide purchasing and use. Um, nice. And it was sort of, you probably, it's probably been on your radar that that's been an, an ingredient that's been in short supply. And it's, it's kind of not so secretly anymore the f- the fifth ingredient in beer. Um, most brewers have to add some purchased carbon dioxide into their product at some point along the way in their process. Um, but we found a way to use this, I want to say, free resource. Um, it's not really free because you have to run a little bit of run a little bit of. Uh, power to, to make it mm-hmm. um but we use that in place of uh carbon dioxide where most brewers would be pushing beer around their tank to tank uh with carbon dioxide purging out tanks from uh, to remove oxygen with carbon dioxide uh from the beginning we've tried to do that almost exclusively with, with nitrogen rather than carbon dioxide and it saved us not just a tremendous amount of money, for sure, a tremendous amount of money, but it's also um, definitely significantly reduced our carbon footprint. And that's not even to consider just that carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas on its own, um, but it's also really energy intensive just truck around. And and uh, as as we've seen, even in national news and international news for that matter, mm-hmm. um, it's been in short supply for three years now, practically since the beginning of the pandemic. And yeah. one of the dri- one of the drivers of that supply uh, shortfall, this was really interesting to me, counterintuitive, was um, the first few months of COVID restrictions, people weren't driving anywhere. So ethanol plants were not operating and a lot of our CO2 comes from ethanol plants. Uh, there's also been, there's also been contaminated, uh, supply from one of the big 
sources in in um, a place called Jackson Domes is one of the big natural supplies, and there's been some sort of tainting of that. And you know, we've heard firsthand stories of other brewers like really, really having a hard time finding this raw material. Yeah, um, and we've been relatively insulated from it. <clears throat> so when we built the new facility two years ago, we um, we sized up uh, a bigger nitrogen system, uh, which again, we use for virtually every application that most other brewers need to use carbon dioxide for. We use it to push, push beer around, purge tanks, um, clean kegs. Um, and sometimes we're even substituting it, and especially in the case of cleaning kegs, we're substituting it for pure compressed air, um, hmm. which lowers our dissolved oxygen in the final product. So like a lot of times, uh, the keg cleaning process starts with pushing out the remains of a dirty keg just with compressed air. Mm -hmm. well, we, do, we do that with nitrogen. So we never reintroduce, or we minimize how much oxygen we reintroduce to that sealed environment. Um, and we also took a cue from the chiller scenario where we were forced to keep it inside. This time we intentionally kept it inside and built, uh, had custom fabricated ducting that allows us to discharge that heat inside the building in the winter mm -hmm. and to the outside in the summer. So we've now been through two full winters. Um, I think we're through this one uh, where we have not turned on heaters in, a, in an entire acre of our warehouse is an acre. So we, we heat our entire warehouse through the winter just with waste heat from our process. Oh my gosh. And it's hard to quantify what the, um, hard to quantify what the monetary savings are because we never, we never operated without this. Yeah. Um, but it's surely much more than, much more than zero. Um, and of course, I hope you can hear how, how proud I am of figuring this out. There's a, there's a, you know, a little bit of a halo effect to be able to say like, Hey, we, we're all working in short sleeves mm -hmm. through the winter in our warehouse. And, uh, that's not been my experience in some other breweries I've been in. Yeah. Um, are you so, able to, is, is, are you able to like con control the temperature or is it, you know, it's fairly, it's fairly manual. It's like okay. louver, it's like louvers that we either open or close. Okay. Um, but we have a series of ceiling fans that keeps the air moving around. Nice. And so far we've been, you know, right in the range of very comfortable, like right around 70 degrees all the way through the winter. Oh um, and, you know, on some of the shoulder seasons, the weather is a little weird. It can be overly warm. Um, if anything, it's been too warm on a handful of winter days. And mm. you just you just change the ducting. So we do it manually. We could we could probably pretty easily integrate a, a thermostatic control. Mm -hmm. um, but so far we haven't had to. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 kind of a neat um look the passive way to uh to use some of what is otherwise truly a uh, waste product yeah i i get the name of the brewery but i think they're in south they're in one of the dakotas 
and I was talking to them at a, at a beer festival and they, they do a similar process, but basically they pipe the heat into a system of like tubes that have mm -hmm. been installed underneath like the parking lot of the oh, brewery. Sure. Yep. And or the brewery is like part of a complex of like other, you know, retail spots and, and that kind of thing. Basically, you know, in the Dakotas, if you can imagine, they get a comical amount of snow. Of course. That entire like parking structure doesn't need plowing or anything. Oh, that's cool. Because of all the heat that's produced yeah, from the brewery. Yeah, yeah that's neat. Found, which I found fascinating. So I feel like, you know, um, there's so much that's already produced within the brewing process. And we talked about water as well, um, that, you know, getting creative with, with whatever is coming off of the production side mm -hmm. makes mm -hmm. a lot of sense for sure. Last time we talked, did we talk about um, vapor, the vapor condensers that we have as well? No, well, a little bit. We, we touched on that a little bit, but I, yeah, please elaborate. So we have, um, we have devices on both of both of our brew houses uh, that, rather than venting the steam from the boil into the atmosphere mm -hmm. um it's a it's a keeps the the steam inside the building and has heat exchangers uh, associated that run cold water in the opposite direction of the steam and we gather back or recapture um a really high percentage of the energy that we're using during the boil uh, and store that energy in the form of hot water uh, and then reuse that water the next brew day or for cleaning or for whatever else we might need hot water for. So we have um, relatively, it's a relatively modest uh, investment um, mm -hmm. to bolt on this equipment to, a to I think you could do it to virtually any brew kettle. Nice. Um, and it, again, you get, you kind of get the double dip on that energy expense. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. I mean, and again, we've done so we've done water. these things from the beginning, so it's impossible to really quantify what the savings are, but we we know that it feels good, and we know that it's the right thing to do. Yeah, and I I, I also I mean I can you know you definitely hear the like you said the pride in your voice, but I mean it's 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 already you know the steam's already there. You might as well put it to use, and there's so much. There's so much water needed for beer production. Oh, so much, so much. I mean, it's uh, not just the actual recipe. I, I don't think, and, and we touched on this previously, I don't think uh, people really grasp how much cleaning goes into oh beer gosh. production. <laughs> I mean, oh. when you when you walk people through, you know, the the shiny tanks and everything like that, I don't think people realize that like, hey, have you ever cleaned out a stock pot? Like times that by <laughs> times that by 20, that's what you're, that's what you're cleaning out. Totally. 20,000. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely a, uh, a big undertaking. Um, so yeah. These... And at the end of the day there we use, um, you know, if the industry average is something like seven gallons of water for seven barrels of water for every barrel produced um we're closer to like three and a half or four which is nice. really which is really great and of course water is a it's a finite resource for us all and it still sounds really high when i say it that it takes four four times the amount of water uh to make a can of beer 
Um, but it's, it's a fact it's, it's a nature of the beast and we try to minimize, minimize our, our overall impact on, on these limited resources that we all have to figure out how to, how to share and sustain. Yeah. Are you, I mean, look over the past couple of years, um, there's been a massive amount of, I mean, breweries opening has slowed down slightly, but, but still there's, there's still a lot opening. I mean, you're pretty dialed into the brewing community. Have you noticed that the newcomers are taking sustainability as seriously? I, uh, I'd like, I'd like to say yes. Okay. But we've been so, I mean, the, the, the fact of the matter is the last couple of years, we've been so, um, so focused on navigating the changing landscape that it's been hard. To, it's been hard to get out and see uh, new places, much less visit some of our old friends. That's fair. Um, I think uh, one of the, one of the trends that I see within this uh, way, this latest wave of openings is that they're almost necessarily pretty small operations mm -hmm. um which are really locally focused in a lot of cases and i won't speak um too, too broad of terms but i think there is something inherently sustainable about the the neighborhood brewery um one of you know one of the things that you know sort of goes unsaid is how much how many resources get consumed trucking beer around and trucking co2 around and trucking malt and hops and everything from all over the place so what we are seeing is this trend toward um and I'm, I'm definitely here for it uh local agriculture um all over the place i mean i think i've seen hops are being grown further south than we used to think was possible i think i saw that there's a hop farm in virginia north carolina mm -hmm. um and that's one of the trends that is happening at, at the micro level for sure it's not um there aren't a lot of suppliers that can that can um meet even the demands of even a brewery our size much less a, a really a national brand um but we're definitely seeing this trend inside the trend where a lot of these newer um newer brewers are focused on that local uh, local economy um, all the way to all the way through the life cycle of of the of their own products, which I think is um, maybe a return to how it used to be, way way back. Yeah. In in a small way. All of the eighteen hundreds. Yeah. Um. <laughs> maybe maybe even maybe even longer ago than that. Yeah. Where it was truly where the origins of all of these beer styles today are really based on strictly what was available before there was trucking and even even trains to move uh to move raw materials around the world yeah so last show we we really focused on local hot production we talked mm -hmm. about you know i mean not sorry we talked about malt malt production um and malt uh maltsters um, mm -hmm. in the hudson valley um so i wanted before we wrap up i wanted to talk about uh, hot production um, and in the Hudson Valley specifically, as far as, you know, you mentioned that there are more hop farmers kind of growing um, in that area. And, you know, it's definitely expanding around the U.S. 
I know that, um, you know, there, there are more creative solutions coming around. Um, you know, I've seen like hop, uh, oils and, and mm-hmm. things like that, that brewers can use. Um, where, where are you standing with, with, sustainable solutions for hop usage, whether it be purchasing more locally or, you know, using these kinds of, uh, you know, distilled hop products or what's, uh, what are your feelings? Well, it's incredibly important to know uh, as much as you can about whatever ingredient you're using. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I can't pretend that the bulk of what we do is, is, the, or the bulk of the hops that we use are not grown uh, in Washington, Oregon, and Idaho, right? So there's, uh, we make a lot of IPA, and in order to make modern IPA, you really need um, pretty specific aroma and flavor characteristics that are only available, and I say this, I shouldn't say only available, but are are, are easiest to find and source and acquire from the really the, the big commercial operations that are, you know, between those three states, there's uh, 80, 80 or so big farms. They they work sometimes together. Um, there are a couple of big suppliers. Uh, and of course, like here, I'm talking about hop varieties like Citra, Mosaic, Bimco, um, some of the newer aroma varieties that are coming out. Uh, but we do pride ourselves on making a lot of New York State farm beer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, we're one of the biggest producers, uh, maybe even the biggest producer of New York State farm beer. And we make, oh, I would guess 600 barrels a year, something like that, of 100% um, New York State grown grown beer. Um, and there's a farm uh, that I've been working with personally for almost 20 years now, on and off. Um, but it's in the Finger Lakes, not in the Hudson Valley, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit further north and west. And again, it, it aligns with the, uh, the latitude, latitudinal history of where, where hops have, have been cultivated a little bit better than, than down here in the Hudson Valley. Um, it's called Peterson Farms. It's in Seneca Castle, Seneca Castle, New York, just, uh, just northwest of Ithaca, where I used to live. Um, and back in the day, and it'll be 20 years next year, um, at Ithaca Beer, when I was there, we made the first New York State hopped beer that had been made like since pre-prohibition. Mm-hmm. So something like had been 75 years since since there was a, a hop supply in, in New York. And we made this double IPA. Um, and it was, you know, it, we... Ithaca Beer Company was very small then, but it was, um, you know, noteworthy in a, in, a, in a small way. And this guy has really stuck to it. And he's the first first farmer who who had a vision that there was going to be a demand coming. He, he understood, I think, you know, the, the Finger Lakes has always had, or maybe not always, but at least during this whole time has had a, a thriving wine winemaking community and i think he predicted that that beer would come behind it and he's really stuck to his guns and and uh you know i'm sure there were years where it made no sense what he was doing but we've just released re-released a rebranded um hazy ipa that we call yes farms yes beer 
uh, and it's uh, made strictly with his hops. And it's got Cascade, Chinook, um, Comet, and Cashmere. And he's really growing great hops at a very small scale. So we're able to make a couple of batches of this per year. Um, and the New York State Department of Ag and Markets has recently um, created a certification, uh, like a like a a stamp, like a stamp of approval. And, and this this new brand um, features it prominently on the label. It's New York State grown and certified. Mm -hmm. And we had to work with uh, the farmers to to make sure they were compliant with the with the um, ag and markets requirements for. Um, I guess validating that everything was grown here in the state under under um, best practices, and we think these are the first beers in New York that have this certification. Um, nice. So it's 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 really exciting, and the product is it's awesome. Um, it's not something that we can scale up much more. Like I say, we could make a couple hundred barrels of it a year, mm -hmm. uh, but it's super um validating to see something that you know that I've been personally involved in for a couple of decades really become kind of commercially feasible in a way that it wasn't before nice yeah it's and the, when we had the same conversation around malt you know it's a similar conversation where you know you've got these smaller producers going up against you know, massive companies that have been producing for years and years and years. Um, so, you know, that change in the industry um, is is going to take a little while and it, it, you know, isn't something that will, that will just flip overnight. And, and honestly, I mean, you know, I'd still want, I'd still want to have beers, you know, with delicious hops from the Pacific Northwest. Um, but, you know, kind of seeing this grow, um, I think they're, they're also somewhat near Climbing Bines Hop Farm mm -hmm. in, uh, mm -hmm. in Penyan in yep. Finger Lakes. Um, so I've, yeah, there's a lot of really cool, well, shout out to the Finger Lakes. There's a lot of yeah, really cool stuff yeah. to see in there as well. No doubt. And there's also a little pocket around um, what we call Leatherstocking County, uh, like around the Cooperstown area. Mm. Um, which was uh, where most of the hops used in the U.S. were grown um, over 100 years ago. Oh, wow. So there's been a little bit of a revival there, and that's part of the, the full circle story that a lot of the suppliers like to tell. But it takes a tremendous amount of dedication and investment on the supplier side. Uh, and, you know, we've seen a handful of farms come and go even in the last five years. Uh, because you really have to bring a great product to market, mm -hmm. a great ingredient uh, to market in order for a brewer to turn it into a, a great beer. And and so I'll admit, I at at the top at the beginning of this conversation here, I had asked a little bit about um, you know hop distillates or or oils or whatever being used in beer. I'm not too familiar with the process, but I'm assuming you know it's still preferable to use hop hop pellets or fresh hops well that's a matter that's a matter of opinion okay. um we think we think of them as tools in the toolbox 
Nice. Um, they all, every one of these products can bring something different. And it's like every month there's a new, there's a new, um, a new one. We, we think of them um, internally, at least we call them advanced hot products. So mm -hmm. the raw, the raw, the rawest material you can use is, is mm -hmm. right from the field, still wet. Um, and that's, of course, it's only available in a very small window uh, during harvest. And then the second least processed, um, and I should say, we, you know, we've, we've done that a little bit wet hop beers, but it's, it's hard to execute, um, because of this intense seasonal, seasonal nature of it. Yeah. Uh, and then the, the second least processed ingredient is the dried flowers. Um, and we use those every brew like that's a point of difference between us and and almost every small brewer um we finish all of our all of our hoppy beers um with whole hop flowers cascade in general from a specific farm that we have a partnership with in washington siegel ranch um it's actually the farm that that is the first farm that grew cascade uh, back in the 60s oh wow um and we buy whole bale hops from them we cut them up at our brewery with a with a chainsaw with food grade lubricant on it. Um, and we use those in a hop back as part of our process. And I guess this is just a long way of saying that you can, you can use, and I'll, I guess I'll get there eventually. It's a part of a whole for us. Like we like to yeah. create layers of, of flavor. So through our brewing process on what we call the hot side and the brew house, we'll use um, in order uh, a CO2 extract, which is like an intense um, liquid extract of of like supercritical um, alpha acids and and oils that come mm -hmm. in those come in a can, but they are a, a super intense um, product that has no vegetable matter associated with it. So it's very clean. It creates the the bitterness um well for, in our beers the the bitterness is is from that product and then as we go on through the process we'll we'll add pellets and some of those are the traditional t90 pellet mm -hmm. and then we'll also use some of these newer uh more concentrated pellets uh some of those are t45 which is like half the 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 t designation is how much of, of the um how much of the pellet is uh plant material so the the t90 is 90 percent plant material the t45 is 45 percent plant material um and then there's another uh there's another similar product from a different supplier that they call cryo uh there's another third one that we're seeing now called cgx and they're all sort of slightly different takes on operating at processing very low temperature and getting harvesting just the lupulin glands or or minimizing anything that isn't the lupulin glands okay and one of the selling points of these is that they're ultimately lighter uh that there's more value packed in more brewing impact per box or per freight unit if you will at the end of the day yeah um and again, like a truckload of hops from the West Coast, it's like $5,000 just for the freight, right? So if you can get, if you can get um, more, more ingredient for less, less laid in cost, we can pass 
we can pass that those savings along right on down the chain. Um, so we use extract pellets, more concentrated pellets, and then as the final stop, uh, we we send that fully hopped wort through a hop back, which is a a big filter bed full of whole flowers. So we're creating layers with all of these different products. Sometimes nice. we've made beers that are focused on a specific uh, variety, like Citra, for instance, and we can use a Citra extract, a Citra T90, a Citra T45, and Citra flowers, mm -hmm. and sort of really get to the essence of of Citra, right? Without it being, without it just being one ingredient, one note. You can really get some depth out of uh, out of any specific variety if you can use different um, different expressions of it. Yeah. So we try to we try to use all of those tools uh, to their best advantage uh, to whatever extent we are able. Nice. I like that. I like that analogy tools in the toolbox that that definitely makes that definitely makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And it's always, you know, it's all it's it's a, always a matter of opinion for better or worse. Mm -hmm. um, but we like to create depth of flavor. And, and we think that this whole hop treatment that we do uh, to all of our beers is a big part of uh, the character, our house character, if you will. Nice. Well, Jeff, we have come uh, to our time. Thank you so much. Man, it for... goes fast. I know, but but see, that's that's how you can tell it's a good show, right? Yeah, I, um, I mean, I hope it goes fast for everyone who listened. <laughs> no, um, it definitely does because um, this is just all great information. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. Um, you always get me thinking uh, about new ways to explain this stuff, too. <laughs> a lot of it is bottled up inside my head and uh, getting it out in a in a um straightforward way is is it's very helpful to talk through these things sometimes well happy to help and you know hey maybe one of these days here you'll write a book um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe i'll get started on that this afternoon yeah well uh jeff thank you so much uh listeners please uh check out industrial arts brewing company if ever you're in the hudson valley Take time and go up to the Finger Lakes. It's definitely worth exploring. Um, and if you have the ability to purchase industrial arts beer, definitely do it and definitely try it. You will not oh, be disappointed. So um, this has been another episode of Beer Me Radio. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, feel free to reach out at Beer Me Radio at Instagram or Beer Me Radio at gmail.com. Um, please check us out and other podcasts on all about beer. We are part of that um, wonderful site now, and there's a lot of really great podcasts on there. So plenty to listen to, um, but we will catch you next time. Cheers. <laughs>